Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. On today's show, Maria Tamarkin joins me to talk about her complex and thought-provoking address challenging our defences of literature as making us more empathetic, more productive or even better people. It was part of the Wheeler Centre's annual oration at the State of the Writing Nation given by a notable Australian writer each year. The address went up online last night and is now available on the Wheeler Centre website. Uh, Maria Tamarkin will join me later in the hour. But soon, the Word for Word non-fiction, National Nonfiction Festival has rolled around again. The only literary festival, so festival organisers say, devoted to entirely to works of non-fiction, which always encourages me to ask, what exactly is non-fiction when it comes to literature? That is one thorny question. I will be asking the festival director, Rochelle Smith, when she joins me shortly. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. You're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg. The Word for Word National Non-Fiction Festival kicks off on the 20th of November, so very, very soon. The three-day fest is devoted to works of non-fiction and the theme this year is life changing. A fitting one with all we've endured and an online program that very definitely fits the bill. I'm joined now by Festival Director Rochelle Smith. Rochelle, welcome to Backstory. Are you there? Thanks for having me. I'm here. I'm here. Thanks for having me again. Wonderful. It's so lovely um, that it's rolling around to that time of year. Although I'm sure like everyone, there's this strange paradox about this year that it both feels like the longest year we've ever had and also somehow has flown by in a crazy whirl. That's right. It's, it's just so strange this year. Um, I've been planning the festival literally from my bedroom um, on my computer. So well, we've been working from home. The libraries have been closed. Um, they're open now, though, um, which is wonderful. And our venue will be um, broadcasting from our um, wonderful Geelong Library and Heritage Centre over the weekend. But all of our presenters will be coming to us remotely and we will be sending it all out to our audience um, via the internet and it's just, yeah, it's just so different this year. I, I really, I, I'm going to pose a question to you that I'm pretty sure we discussed at length last time you came on the show, which would have been a year ago, and that is what exactly is non-fiction when it comes to literature? I really feel like with your program covering things like unconscious bias, intersectional feminism, hidden illnesses, climate crises, ageing, scary technology, just to mention a few, <laughs> there's a lot in here that really, you know, really 
makes us ask the question of what is an objective fact, um, if there even is that. And so, therefore, what is nonfiction really? Well, there's just so much to it, Mel. I mean, there's, you know, there's so many different forms of nonfiction as well. I mean, obviously, it's a genre, um, it's, it's based in fact, um, and it isn't, you know, a made-up story, literally, but it's, um, it's still, you know, it does, we walk a, we walk a fine line, really, um, uh, with creative nonfiction in particular, and this year, the program, we have some elements of documentary making and nonfiction playwriting that we're, we're incorporating into some sessions as well. I mean, you know, we're going from um, everything from some things that are really sort of academic and factual right through to, you know, um, kind of self-help with our heavily meditated session with um, our meditation guru. Like, it's, it's um, you know, it's a very broad genre. Yeah, look, I love that uh, one of the and, – and I'm flicking through the festival program, which I should say is up uh, online uh, at the moment at wordforwordfestival.com.au and it's on um, on Issue, which is a, a platform that allows you to kind of upload, um, you know, your publication so that you can flick through them like they're an old-school magazine or brochure. <laughs> so it does really have that – that great very sort of it's very, very satisfying. I love it. it is, they've even kind of the UX allows you to sort of curve the pages slightly, so it feels like you're really turning a page, which I I really still enjoy. Um, but one of the early um, entries in this um, brochure or in your program, rather, is a workshop on unconscious bias and cultural mm. respect in nonfiction. I'd love mm. you to speak a little bit about that one. Yeah, well, that's um, that's a really interesting um, occurrence that that's come that, that's come about. So um, I just spoke last year last year with you about how I've been working with uh, our Wadawurrung traditional owners here in the Geelong area, um, and that um, partnership and that collaboration and um, has continued. And actually, one of our um, traditional owners, Karina Eccles, um, she who um, you know. Sort of, I was working with last year, continuing to work with this year, and is an amazing support of the festival. Um, she actually made a suggestion to me about that particular um, topic, and then we sort of developed it to be relevant to the writing side of things because um, Marsha Uphill, who is doing that workshop, she is um, a cultural educator and she runs unconscious bias workshops. So we've joined her with, and actually um, Sue Lawson is now, uh, she's unable to do that um, particular session. So it's now Marianne Ballantyne, who is actually the publisher of Wild Dog Books um, and has worked and collaborated as a an, as an, uh, non-Indigenous person. She's collaborated with many, um, many First Nations authors for, you know, 25-plus years and is behind, you know, um, books like Young Dark Emu and uh, and those sorts of things. So um, she has joined with Marsha and they're going to be presenting. Um, they're going to be talking about unconscious bias but also about being a writer, being particularly writers of non-fiction and how important it is to... Um, and whose stories there are, they are to tell and what are some of the pitfalls um, and, and how to recognise your own bias and cultural appropriation issues and those, those sorts of things. Um, and I, that's something that comes up all the time um, as, you know, when I'm being pitched um, things in non-fiction for this festival. So that's how it sort of arrived, that idea. It's really interesting because uh, after this interview, I'll be talking to Marita Markin about her, um, you know, address to the writing, 
the State of the Writing Nation address. And, you know, in it, she's kind of questioning some of these assumptions that are made about, you know, um, the kind of universal imagination and, and instead replacing it with a sense of responsibility. So it's a really interesting thing, certainly mm. in a festival that's about nonfiction, is really interrogating our own uh, fictions, um, interrogating mm. our own sense of what is what is factual and what is perspective. Um, I love yeah. that this is, is one of the things that's really... Um, focused on here. I, I want to kind of touch on some of these other events that you're doing, all of which kind of really get the richness of these kind of nuanced ways of looking at things. There's a, a panel um, on modern feminism, really looking at intersectional feminism and the, the new waves of feminism. Would you like to speak to that a little bit as well? Yeah, well, we're really, you know, that, that's going to be amazing. We actually have Mona Al-Tawi, who's appearing um, via the US, which, we, you know, uh, we wouldn't, if we weren't doing an online festival, I don't think we'd be able to say we have Mona Al-Tawi on the, on the program. Um, so, and, and joined by um, Virginia Trioli and Jenny Kennedy, and they're really very different um, very different works um, and really interesting um, the way that they're, all of their approaches around feminism. So I'm really, uh, it'll be really interesting to see how that conversation evolves and I think it will be an organic um, conversation on the day, which will be fantastic. Yeah, there's so many other really fascinating festivals. I'm just going to list a few. The Mutant Project, which sort of is exploring uh, the ethics of um, genetic um, kind of editing program in China and other things. That's that's an amazing, um, another, so Evan Kirksey is actually a professor. He's an American professor, anthropologist, and he he actually works out of um, Deakin University and he hasn't been able to get back to, he's based in Australia at the moment, but he's uh, unable to to get back because of COVID. And uh, so in his spare time, he's built a small house, you know, while while he's, Killing time in America, but he um, he's got you know in the in the beginning of the Mutant Project, you know he's referencing the timelines of um, gene editing, but he incorporates things like um, references to Stranger Things and um, uh, the, the the Netflix show, you know, and and, uh, and things like that. So he's really bringing gene editing into sort of pop culture and all that. You know, that's work. It's just really really fascinating stuff. Yeah, it's really. Um, I mean, it's one that I definitely need to. <laughs> I need to sort of see. It just looks insane. Um, you're covering ageing, um, you know, what it's like to be young right now. Um, there's also, um, you know, an idea of our relationship with America, which is something that I think a lot of people are really considering, considering the state of America as well. Um, yeah, that's right. That's right. That, that particular panel, you know, that um, we were thinking, okay, I'm, you know, the election was on the 4th of November and, and this is going to be, you know, that, that's going to be on the 21st of November. I wonder what, the, what you know, the, the state of things will be. So let's, let's put these really interesting people together and, and find out what they think. So, um, you know, I think it's a little bit like planning a dinner party and inviting everybody that's really fascinating and, and just seeing what, what happens on the day, which is the wonderful thing about being live. Yes. If you've just joined us, uh, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to Rochelle Smith, who's the festival director of the Word for Word National Nonfiction Festival. I am really fascinated as well uh, to, to see that you're covering um, the climate crisis. I feel as though there's, there's this sense um, that 
people almost put on pause their concerns to a little to a, an extent about the climate while we were facing the most recent crisis, forgetting, of course, that we started the year with a devastating climate event, and in fact have very clearly been experiencing climactic conditions that are worrying, despite these little reprieves that may have happened uh, mm. around the world um, because of a reduction in in some emissions. Uh, what what do you think this panel is really going to be focusing on? This panel, uh, the climate crisis panel, is really focusing on the rising sea levels in the Pacific. So it's quite a specific area of um, climate change and, and that, that particular effect. But, I mean, that that's rather a broad um, term as well within itself because, it, you know, that, that can mean... Um, salinity and that can mean pollution and that can mean nuclear testing and that can mean a lot of different things but um, we have actually some documentary makers who are, have, have, are launching their, their short documentary and that'll be filmed, that, that will be screened um, for the first time, it'll be a debut screening at the, at the end of that session and Tom Bamford who is um, the author of The Rising Tide and uh, they will be speaking with Eve Fisher about the process of being in Kiribati and in the other Pacific Islands that Tom um, went to and worked and, you know, writing and producing their, their two very different works of non-fiction about similar, similar issues. And then, you know, in talking, um, Mel, about what you were saying about, um, you know, other, other things that have sort of been, been forgotten somewhat in, in while well, we've been dealing with this most recent pandemic crisis, um, you know, the In Our Nature panel... It's also, you know, talking really about the environment and particularly the bushfires um, at the beginning of the year. Um, and, you know, because we're talking with um, Kyle Wild about the 99th koala and we're talking about um, Animals Make Us Human, the anthology. And so there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of discussion, there'll be a lot of discussion in that, uh, in that that panel as well about um, the environment and particularly about bushfires and how that's affecting um, the, the natural world here in Australia and how what our actions are doing um, to animals in particular. Absolutely. I feel like what is really wonderful about the, um, you know, doing a non-fiction festival is that you really get to choose from a lot of the amazing and in-depth work that people do in long works of literature and other non-fiction forms, as you say, documentary as well. And and that is that we don't just skate over issues or just have opinion talking heads, which seems to be something we certainly inherited from the United States in terms of having these kind of um, supposedly sort of expert panels opining on things, um, rather people teasing out ideas that were the legacy of thoughtfulness and research and, and can sit with some of the uh, some of the complexities of these issues is, is that you know what is it like to curate that kind of an event well it's, it's you know it's it's very dif- difficult to to choose because they, these are as you say you know the people are putting so much into these into these works and and very very passionate people um you know non-fiction can be you know someone writing a memoir about their about their life or their experience um and that's where the theme life changing also works so well across across this non-fiction spectrum um and then it can be you know something that has happened to somebody like Kai Wilde that I was mentioning um who who is an arborist who drove you know 1500 kilometers to, to Kangaroo Island um to, to get up a tree and save the 
koalas because he could get up a tree because he's an arborist. So he's written a book about that, but that wouldn't have come about without that life-changing event. And, uh, you know, Chloe Higgins, uh, The Girls uh, memoir, so that, that particular panel um, on young shoulders is Chloe and um, Shannon Malloy speaking about their, their memoirs, which are both, you know, they're still quite young people, but the, the issues and the, and the um, life-changing events that they're discussing happened when they were teenagers. So Do you feel... That, that, that perspective, yeah. Do you feel as though there's been, um, you know, a, a change in the kind of non-fiction works that are being put out? Or do you think, you know, that there's a kind of feedback loop that's happening where, you know, people are demanding, um, you know, more diverse, more interesting uh, works from writers from a variety of backgrounds and festival directors are paying attention to that. Yeah, maybe we're paying attention to it more and perhaps it's because, you know, the the change in our media and the way that we consume um, our news and our stories and, you know, that we are not as perhaps our attention spans and sort of uh, the way that we actually consume information has become a little... uh, I think it's become, you know, um, everything is it's much more brief and, um, you know, it's just sort of the highlights, the highlights are real. <laughs> um, and so if you want to go into into something in depth, you know, n- non-fiction where, where someone has, has taken the trouble to really research and present all sides of things um, and you can go fully into, into a subject, it's a deep dive into those subjects. Yeah, I, I want to finish up on on a question about uh, being an online event because there's been a lot talked about. Obviously, everything's been online, and mm. uh, and it, <laughs> everyone's been in this sort of situation. Off air, we were talking about how you were rehearsing <laughs> to go live to That's air, right. which which is so interesting. But what I'm really fascinated by is something else that you said, which is that uh, that you've had um, people have reached out to you who've said that they're able now to access this content in a way that they couldn't before it was online. And I'm wondering, what does this mean for the future? I know people are very excited about coming out of lockdown, but I've also heard from many people saying that they're dreading it somewhat because they do like some of the elements where things are accessible, whether it's, you know, having access to exercise classes or having access to to things that you're maybe lacking in mobility and you couldn't normally get to and it's coming to you in a much more easy-to-access form or or even affordability, um, it's often um, now uh, being produced um, free or for less money or pay what you feel in some instances, um, not necessarily for this event, but but for some that are out there. How are you feeling the future is going to look for your festival? Well, I really, I really believe that, you know, once we've, we've done this and there's a lot of work and anyone who's been working in online events will will know that you know it is it is a lot more than you kind of imagine it might be at the beginning of the process perhaps but it's um it it means that people can can access it and all of that for all of those reasons I don't think we're going backwards I think that we will be incorporating um into hybrid events so we'll be you know, still having those when we can. We'll be having those in-person events um, with that, you know, that 
atmosphere in the room um, and that electricity and, you know, having your book physically signed and meeting the person and those sorts of things that are difficult, impossible to replicate in an online world. But we'll be also be able, able to offer, you know, filming that and sending that out to people. So I would suggest that it's probably going to be... Um, there'll be a lot of discussions about this after the festival, of course, um, but that, you know... That we will be offering hybrid events, I would I would think with festivals like like Word for Word and others. And I just wanted to men- just pick up on something else that you said, Mel, which was about um, the affordability. Um, I just wanted to highlight that we have a pay it forward um, campaign this year, where we are um, anybody who is doing it tough, um, we we don't want you to miss out. So on our website, you can just um, request a free ticket to any of the sessions if you if you're um, not able to afford to. The tickets are only $10 for each session, by the way. Um, so we've made them an affordable price. Just to, um, but, but anyone who's having trouble, um, for whatever reason, no questions asked, they can do that. And we're also then um, asking people if they are able to support us, to support those people, they could, they could make a donation um, for the price of a ticket. That's uh, that's really great, Rochelle, and thank you so much for joining me today to talk about uh, this great event and um, your really fascinating program. Thanks, Mel. It's always a, always a pleasure to talk to you. That uh, was just great. Thank you. Uh, that was Rochelle Smith, the director of the Word for Word National Nonfiction Festival, uh, which runs the 20th until the 22nd of November. Uh, you can visit wordforwordfestival.com au for a full program and for bookings. Up next, Maria Tamarkin joins me to talk about her mindset shifting address as part of this year's State of the Writing Nation oration. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Now, the writerly imagination is not a superpower that transcends time and space and power and race and class and gender and the postcode and history and that all that stuff about universal stories and universal themes is not merely a sticky cliche but an attack on literature disguised as its most well-intentioned defence. To understand how the corrosive language of rights has been internalised with gusto by white writers such as myself, the right to inhabit the other, the right to the universalising imagination, and how the language of rights needs to be pushed off the perch so the language of accountability and responsibility can take its place, and how that overthrow leads to the flourishing, not the wilting, not the drying up. That's an edited extract from Maria Tamarkin's frankly astonishing public address as part of the annual State of the Writing Nation oration delivered each year by a notable Australian writer. We're very lucky to have Maria Tamarkin uh, on the show now. Uh, Maria, welcome to Backstory. Oh, hello, Mel. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I have to admit, uh, I was talking to a friend about your talk today, and the conclusion I came to is that you have a way of articulating thoughts I want to have had. Um, how did you come to this um, this kind of topic? Why why this particular um, focus? And and your focus, I should really say, is on challenging these notions that we need to defend writers who are attacked in this country, who are undersung in this country, um, particularly writers on the margins. 
and writers of colour, um, but really to think about some of the arguments that we use, things like writing creates empathy or writing makes you a better person or writing somehow um, makes you more productive or reading conversely as well. Um, tell me, um, why have you decided to challenge these, these kind of smug presumptions? Um, look, um, I don't... Um I don't usually know what I am doing uh, for most of the time, so there was no, I, I wasn't sitting there waiting to sort of um, make uh, those kinds of arguments and put them in the world. Um, when I was asked um, to um, deliver this um, address, which of course is a really huge honour, um, it was delivered by Tony Birch and it's inaugural um, year, uh, two years ago, and then by Maxine Beneva-Clark. And uh, my first response was no, and my second response was no, and my third response was no. It, sh it shouldn't be me. I'm just not. I shouldn't be taking that space. There are so many ways in which I am just taking someone else's space by saying yes. And then I kind of worked through my nose towards a yes because I felt that saying no, which kind of felt like an ethical imperative, just to step aside. And I think, and I think this kind of, I mean, more and more I think about, uh, and this is obviously not my thinking, so many uh, brilliant people, um, you know, black and brown intellectuals in Australia and globally are talking about, you know, uh, the importance for right, uh, white writers such as myself, and I'm in, um, in, at, at a university as well, so that's another layer, to kind of step aside and relinquish power, uh, which I think is really, really important. And I think that notion of stepping aside is really, really important. So I really um, wanted to kind of step aside, but then I also caught myself in that kind of vortex, realising that it was kind of also a semi-cowardly thing to do, potentially, and this debate is just kind of happening in my head, even as I speak now, so I actually don't, don't know. Um, so I thought, what if I say yes, and then I look for ways to actually honour my enormous ambivalence about saying yes. What if I say yes as a kind of commitment to doing some work, and to being accountable as, you know, someone who is you know, more, pri more privileged than most. I have had a job for the last five years. I was, you know, up to the age of 40, I just survived, you know, as so many writers do in, in a state of, like, utter maddening precarity, which is only getting worse, and this year has, you know, finished us off in so many ways. Um, and, you know, but the last, the last, you know, five years of my life, I have had that sort of safety net, which, of course, is, you know, I am uh, ensconced within, like, a hugely exploitative, terrible, soul-destroying university, et cetera, et cetera. Nonetheless, you know, I am, I am okay in a way that so many people are not okay. So I felt that maybe, you know, it is my responsibility to actually, you know, make myself accountable for, you know, being being I came twenty twenty as a writer and as a thinker uh, and um, sort of and and just to kind of try to think through um, what's been happening. So this is like a very like a, this is a prehistory. I'm not even beginning to answer your question, Mel. So I don't know if you want to ask me some other questions. We're looking at the time. Oh no! Look, I mean, they, I I I love you've kind of backgrounded. I guess uh, I, I'll come back to the to the direct question because I think this is something I do really you you get to the heart of it in your uh, in your talk. So there, so I will come to that. But but on what you've just talked about, you you begin your talk with. Um, 
you know, with a kind of acknowledgement um, and with the kind of, you know, that we always do the, the acknowledgement that we are on stolen land. And you say, I am a migrant on stolen land. And in standing here today, I'm taking someone else's place. This I cannot escape. This I don't want resolved. And that moment, which is right at the beginning of everything that you say, um, you know, you continue, because my knowing that this moment doesn't belong to me, my sense of being out of place means I may end up doing something worth doing. No guarantees, though. Uh, some, this spoke to something very deep in me. I'm, I'm someone from a mixed race background, from minority cultures um, that always seem to be somehow on the wrong side of history, but it means that I'm always seeing things with that gaze. I'm always uncomfortable and I don't know that I would ever be comfortable with being comfortable. Uh, and I loved seeing that articulated and I feel that there's a real core to your writing that, that speaks to this. Yeah, look, um, I also say that this is something that I, this kind of idea of being that, you know, you know, my uh, family, uh, my family safety comes at the expense, right, of, you know, First Nations people and come, come um, as a kind of form of taking, you know, that, that kind of lurching towards safety and, um, and how much I fight it as well in, 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 you know, and then I kind of fight my own fighting it, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't want my, my, you know, my history, the history of like, Sort of just uh, just trying to stay alive, right? And just trying to live life with dignity. I don't want that to be so profoundly and found foundationally to be mashed with the kind of the idea of theft, right? Um, but it is, right? So, so, but I but I just don't want to present myself as someone who has kind of worked through it and is on the other end of it, on the other side of it, in, in, in some place of kind of moral clarity. Like, I'm not. I'm just in a state of perpetual, you know, kind of turmoil uh, about it. And I just wanted to find a way to talk about it, but for that not to take away from um, other things that I needed to say. So it's almost like you want to do the, the job of, um, like, telling the truth about who you are and where you come from, but you don't want that to become everything you say, right? <laughs> because then it's just you're talking about yourself. So it's like, you know, how do you um, respond to the very important call of, like, the label of introducing yourself um, and not presuming that um, it's very it's very obvious who you are or you don't need to introduce yourself, that you're some kind of universal subject um, stepping into the spotlight, right? I mean, so you have to do that. But, like, how do you just not make it then about yourself, right, uh, in, in, in a way that just drowns out the more important things that you've got to say? So, you know, it's, it's all there, me kind of just wrestling with it. No, well, I mean, you, you do, you continually throughout both the form and the structure, sorry, the form and the content of this talk challenge this idea of universality while also speaking to people um, in in a, in a way that could be understood by a large group um, of very diverse individuals. I think you really, you somehow hit on this, this um, approach to things in a way that, that kind of bears examination. I, I want to talk about some of that, um, particularly the way that you've, you've kind of addressed the form of your, your 
uh, speech because it's really interesting. Um, but first, to come back to the original question, which is why to talk about this idea or this kind of argument that that writing or reading uh, or, you know, the, the kind of tapping into the universal or, or the imaginative act, somehow creating empathy, um, the challenge of that is perhaps um, summed up somewhat um, in a quote that you, you take from Claudia Rankine and Beth LaFrieda, where you say, we acknowledge that every act of imaginative sympathy inevitably has limits. Perhaps the way to expand those limits is not to enter a racial other, but instead to inhabit as intensely as possible the moment in which the imagination's sympathy encounters its limit. And I feel like that is what you're trying to do throughout this talk, and you kind of more or less state that um, that is your attempt here, is to push your imaginative sympathy rather than this false notion of truly somehow being able to walk in someone else's shoes. Um, look, I, 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 it's just really important for me to say that I'm really standing on shoulders of giants in making those arguments. There is some work that I do in this talk that um, perhaps I can claim as, as original, but certainly the, the, the bit that has compelled you in a way that I, pleases me um, endlessly, uh, you know, people, you know, there are many people out there, and of course you refer to Claudia Rankin and Beth LaFreda, uh, many other people who um, have been talking and ha have been doing the, the, the work of, like, making us see uh, what it is to uh, sort of, you know, to keep hanging on to this idea that, um, you know, imagination, writing imagination or artistic or creative or poetic imagination, you know, is unbounded, that it can go uh, anywhere that it uh, wants to go, that it can attach itself to any subject it, it finds interesting and compelling. I mean, this work has been is, is being done in the most kind of amazing ways, and I, in my in my talk, I refer um, only to a handful of and real army of just incredible fucking intellectual revolutionaries out there, you know. So I, I just don't want. This needs to be said that I am I am sort of you know I'm drinking from or I am you know drawing water from this incredible well that is kind of bottomless of this like real uh, radical intellectual work that's been happening for decades uh, but I really wanted to um, the work that I wanted to do um, in this talk was to kind of say that I think we are um, as writers not we I mean but many many of us as writers are caught up in this kind of you know in the vortex of addressing you know what I call the nation's contempt, you know, for writers in particular, and that somehow I felt like we needed to disentangle, you know, our understanding uh, about, you know, who, what kind of work we are doing in this world, why that work is important, and how we can help each other survive, because it's just <laughs> so near impossible to survive, right? Particularly, you know, for emerging writers, younger writers, of course, writers of colour, writers from minoritised communities. I mean, the question of survival is huge, but how can we sort of separate that from the kind of the labour of addressing that particular contempt and the kind of, and the kind of, like, 
terrible, bad arguments that that labor is necessitating. I mean, we have to do that because we have to write those grant applications. Uh, we have to continue making those arguments as, that you've sort of referred to before, Mel, um, you know, about how we make this a better nation. But I just wanted to say, like, let's just remember that we're faking it there. Like, we, that's, they're not the real arguments. We have to, we have to, we have to make them. Uh, and, um, and it's, and, and no other way is out there for us to get whatever money, uh, and that money is just essential in life giving. So I really don't want to suggest, um, you know, that it's not the case. And of course, I would really, really like to acknowledge that we are talking at the time of the parliamentary inquiry, uh, and we have writers who have been coming forward, people like Helen Garner, people like Christos Chalkis, people like Charlotte Wood, you know, they're coming forward and they're trying to talk to, you know, to that parliamentary inquiry about what it's like for writers to actually, you know, be um, trying to survive and to do their work and the kind of the beyond impossible conditions in which uh, that, 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 that kind of situation has, you know, it, it has, you know, become really, really impossible for most writers uh, to do any of that kind of work, right? Mm. So I just really want to acknowledge that um, how deeply, endlessly grateful I am to writers who are coming forward and, 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 trying, and trying to sort of get some blood out of that stone. Uh, it's thankless, it's torturous, it's terrible labor, and it's really necessary, and writers are doing it at, at a great cost to, to their own sanity, right? Uh, but these, those kinds of conversations are really the kind of the, the um, necessary evil. And they should not be at the centre of our self-definition. I think as writers, they should not be at the centre of how we talk to ourselves, how we talk to our children, how we talk, you know, um, to, to our readers, you know, most importantly, about what literature does. And, and I really felt that the whole empathy stuff was just, you know, it was just, uh, like boiled carrots from three days ago and it really does not hold up at all and we just needed to like absolutely and to. and I feel like you really do uh you really do show that you, you know this sense this presumption as well that um that there is a kind of privileged group that supposedly has the leisure to to have empathy and for whom like it's this presumed sense of who has the hegemony of power um which is I suppose a fair assumption because that is exactly how um, how this kind of white supremacy and privilege has worked, um, and the idea of the universal being um, being people that look a particular way in a generally Europe European. Um, I do. I want to go to the form um, before we run out of time because what you have tried to do uh, here is to smash this idea of the universal up um, by fragmenting the eye, I think is how you put it. You've gone away, you've done a, what you call a dirty survey, which frankly is how I want to refer to all surveys from now on, um, which is a, 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 you've, you've kind of hand-selected a group of writers, you tried to make them diverse, you owned that First Nation writers did not have the time um, to respond and um, and, you know, therefore you're not claiming anything particularly about the survey. You were just trying to use it as a creative act um, to to show um, once you'd kind of gotten the responses to these questions, which included things about writing practice and how one was reaching out to support other writers as well. And then you kind of compiled them into this kind of, um, you know, this 
first person, collective first person, um, that that kind of smashed together opposites and differences and all sorts of experiences, some of which had a corollary, some of which had none, um, and to try and let those things be as paradoxical as they needed to be to sort of show that actually um, this group is not a group, of a uniform group in any way, but it could still be heard as a kind of cacophonous voice. I thought that was a really interesting approach. How did you hit on it as an idea? Um, well, firstly, Mel, thanks so much for your um, really kind of beautiful and moving description of what I um, attempted to do, which, of course, was a great risk, and, I, and I'm still unsure about some aspects of it, particularly around anonymity, uh, because I feel that there are some lines in that kind of, uh, in that um, chorus of voices um, that is also kind of both unified and constantly sort of um, disassembling um, itself, um, as it were. And, and, and I love the fact that you use the word paradoxical to talk um, about about that, that kind of, you know, the convergence that I have attempted to do. And I am, uh, there are some such incredible lines and I feel that by not kind of crediting those lines, I am sort of somehow half stealing them or something um, and I really want uh, you know the, the names of those <laughs> who um, who gave me those lines to be next to them so just just to say that I am still thinking through uh, the form uh, but in terms of like uh, coming up to with this idea um, I was just in a shower I highly recommend it um, to people <laughs> And I was just thinking, this is like I got incredible responses. I should also say that you said that I hand selected. I didn't hand select uh, because my whole idea was non-representative samples. Mm. So it was just like really, really. I did not. It was just like a, it profoundly, like committedly random. Uh, because if you attempt some kind of quasi-scientific, you know, sort of fifty percent approach to, then then you have to go all the way. So I just wanted not to go in that direction at all. So it's like really dirty. Really really rogue, really non-scientific. Anyway, so it's random, but in so many ways, you know, it's basically whose email addresses I could find within, you know, five minutes or something, or something like that, But, but which is also kind of problematic, and I can see that. But um, just in terms of, like, I got really incredible responses, and then I didn't know how to put them together without it sort of becoming, like, you know, a bunch of case studies or some kind of, like, well-intentioned, like, report about, you know, the difficulties of being a writer in 2020. And I knew it had to be, and you used the word creative act, and you're exactly right. I knew it had to be creative act. So it was just like stumbling in the dark, which has been my methodology for as long as I can think and remember. And, we're, and then just like, yeah. And Maria, oh, I, I would love to continue this conversation, but we really are hitting up against uh, the end of my hour on air. And I can really say that I'm um, so sad that I cannot continue to talk to you about this piece. We barely even scratched the surface. Um, but thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Um, it's just been great to speak with you. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you, Mel. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, that was uh, the formidable Maria Tamarkin, who was speaking um, thoughtfully and uh, ever generously about her uh, State of the Writers' Nation <clears throat> oration, uh, which was given yesterday. And it is available uh, online on the Wheeler Centre website. I cannot um, recommend it highly enough. Uh, it takes much more um, than the amount of time that I've given you to really unpick uh, exactly 
exactly what it is um, that Maria's managed to do there. And there's so much in there that you can get. She has very much credited um, many of the thinkers that she's quoted um, and you can uh, think for yourselves about your conclusions about it. Uh, I would like to thank my guests uh, from today, Rochelle Smith um, from the Word for Word Festival and, of course, Maria Tamarkin. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.